Good evening, everyone. I'm Laura Coates, and tonight, the explosive fourth indictment of Donald Trump and 18 of his allies in Georgia is moving pretty fast, and they just have days to turn themselves in. It's coming up next Friday. We've got a great lineup of smart and thoughtful voices. Jamil Jaffer, Kara Swisher, Matt Lewis, Gwen Keyes Fleming, Daniel Dale, and my interview with the one and only Morgan Freeman. But first, an ironic twist, everyone. Before 9-11, and of course before becoming Trump's wingman, a man by the name of Rudy Giuliani made his name for putting mobsters behind bars. He did so, I might add, using the very same laws that are being used against him now. Two decades ago, he actually wrote in his book on leadership, and I'm quoting here, I dreamed up the tactic of using the Federal Racketeer Influence and Corruption Organizations Act to prosecute the mafia leadership, unquote, otherwise known as RICO, for those following along. Now, at the time, the law actually was relatively new. But Giuliani, well, he popularized it, making it the model for state and federal prosecutors for decades to come when it comes to large groups attempting a type of conspiracy, including, I might add, Fonnie Willis. The Fulton County DA is now charging Rudy Giuliani with several crimes for his efforts to allegedly overturn the election, including racketeering. Now, the RICO law, something that he has, well, he's championed for years. The upper level people are not used to being convicted and they're certainly not used to being convicted under racketeering, charging them with violations of the, of the federal racketeer influenced and corrupt organization statute, the RICO statute. This is a new way of doing business and a much more effective way to really crush them. If you look at our other racketeering indictments, you will see that uh, those are the same things that we do in all of these cases. I think the two of them together would make an excellent uh, RICO case, racketeering case, like the cases I used to bring not only against the mafia, but also against Boski. The Clinton Foundation is a fraud. The Clinton Foundation, to me, is a racketeering enterprise. And the State Department was a pay-for-play organization. Then I'd put on top of it a racketeering enterprise, Charge. the Clinton Foundation. Wow. Yeah, Clinton Incorporated Racketeering Enterprise. Well, if they had an hold- Italian name, they'd have been, if they had an Italian name, they'd have been prosecuted already. <laughs> if I were back in my old job as U.S. attorney, I would probably indict the Clinton Foundation as a racketeering enterprise. I know you're thinking, all right, Laura, but those are references from years ago. I mean, there's no way that Rudy Giuliani is still touting Rico, concerning, of course, what he is going through right now, right? Not if they do what I recommended four years ago and could easily do for them, which is bring a racketeering case. The statute of limitations hasn't run in a racketeering case. I can get them all in. And uh, Hunter Biden gives us the classical definition of a racketeering case. That did say August 1st on the upper right part. You saw that, right? Well, tonight, CNN is reporting that Giuliani is now struggling to keep up with his legal bills, staring down hundreds of thousands of dollars in many losses related to his work for Trump even after the election. And today, he is defending himself by referencing the very work we just talked about, the work against gangsters. I'm the same Rudy Giuliani that went after the mafia. I haven't changed one bit. The country's become fascist and communist. I haven't. Yeah. No, I... The same Rudy Giuliani, the same quest for justice. 
Gosh almighty, if Donald Trump committed a crime, love him though I do, I'd put him in jail. Well, let's get to the news tonight. Former Chief of Staff Mark Meadows, who is also charged, is now trying to move his case to federal court. I want to bring in Jamil Jaffer, a former associate White House counsel to President George W. Bush and founder and executive director of the National Security Institute at George Mason University. Jamil, you and I have been talking about, well, frankly, a lot of these matters for quite some time. This was expected to have this now fourth indictment. It's coming out of Georgia. One of the big issues, of course, is that the attorney, Fannie Wells, the prosecutor, has said, look, 19 people, no problem. I can do it all in one trial, and I'm going to have a trial date set within six months. A lot of people's ears perked up and said, wow, what is the the moon like on your planet? Yeah, I mean, look, this is going to be a tough case for her to pursue with all these defendants. They're all going to try and sever uh, under Georgia law. Some are going to try to move the case to federal court. Um, There's going to be a series of arguments about the very acts that she charges, 161 acts in the RICO count alone. Um, Some of them, you know, fairly early in the process of the, the day after the election, right, the president making speeches publicly, tweeting stuff out on Twitter. You know, a lot of these things are going to be debated about whether uh, this is free speech, right? The president can debate whether or not, um, you know, there was there was fraud in the election, right? I mean, these are these this is a this is a hard case to bring. There are a lot of really legit facts that she cites in her indictment. You know, the things involving the call with Raffensperger that we all heard about, that we've all heard now. The 11,780 right. f- um, f- uh, votes won, yes. Find those votes. Right. Mm-hmm. right. Which some, by the way, on Twitter are saying, well, fine meant find real votes, right? Not find fake votes. I mean, that's kind of ridiculous, right? Fine meant discover, create, do whatever yeah. you need to do to help me win this election. We all know, I and mean, nobody can listen to what the, what the president said, the former president said, without knowing what he was talking about. Nobody can be, nobody's confused about what he was asking Raffensperger to do there. I don't know, it kind of has reminiscence of um, what the definition of is, is, right? It has that same, that lawyers' hands are all over this. But speaking of Mark Meadows in particular, this is an issue people are really leaning into. He's trying to move to federal court, which essentially would mean, it would say in Georgia, by the way, but it would move to the Northern District of of Georgia, maybe more conservative than, say, the Fulton County demographics that we know. The whole purpose of that being, he's saying, look, if you're charging me based on things that I did while I was the chief of staff, right. that's under the color of law, my title. And so I get to remove these things. That would, that would Was that bode well for you? What do you think? I mean, look, this is an interesting argument. I'm not sure how it goes for him. It does, the statute does say in his official or individual capacity, but it has to be relating to his office and, and the responsibilities of his office. This is about a political debate that was going to whether his boss would stay in office, right? Not clear uh, this is under the color of that authority. It's a debatable uh, proposition at the same time, right? Some of these things were taking place in Congress. It's hard to know uh, whether that's going to be a credible uh, case he can bring. Another sort of outside you know, char- claim that he might bring, at least the president might bring, is, look, I have civil rights. Uh, I can't get a fair trial on my rights under law in state court in Georgia. I need to remove to the federal court as well. We'll see if Donald Trump makes those arguments as well. Hard argument to make, but one that he might put out there as well. I mean, he's got maybe time, nothing but time and opportunity to actually get it done. This yeah. is now the fourth. I'm sure he'll try a whole whole sorts of defenses. I want to turn now to what he's been saying and maybe what his thumbs have been typing on things like Truth Social and beyond, because there are some statements that he is making right now as well. One is that he is promising that he's going to hold a press conference. Imagine that. And he's saying that he's going to provide irrefutable proof of election fraud in Georgia. 
Are you a little stunned, A, that he's going to have this press conference? Probably not. But the idea of the irrefutable proof of election fraud in Georgia, why are we just now hearing about this proof, one? And two, are you surprised he's sticking with this particular path given the new indictment? You know, look, I mean, he's he's said that there's fraud in Georgia now for three years. We haven't seen any facts that support that. We've seen repeatedly Republican officials, not just in Georgia, but in other states saying, look, I voted for Donald Trump. I supported Donald Trump. I would prefer to be with the president of the United States. But there was no fraud in our states. We've seen that in Georgia. We've seen it in the state of Washington. We've seen that everywhere. You know, also look at this. And we were talking about the Georgia 2020 election, right? You've got people like Brian Kemp, the the governor, and among others, which is interesting in Georgia because we're not talking about the talking point of Democrats who are trying to undermine Donald Trump. Raffensperger, Jeff Duncan, obviously Brian Kemp, all Republicans and conservative ones at that, Gabriel Sterling as well. Look at this. He is coming out to suggest that, look, this was not a stolen election by any stretch of the imagination. I mean, look at these numbers. You've got three separate ballot counts that actually confirmed Biden's victory. He won by there's that magic number. That's why Trump wanted the 11,780. And also you that have the request to be made. I mean, the size of the lead here is significant in these key areas. What does this tell you about the fact that you've got these data points and you get this continued, yeah. continued statement? Look, I mean, the president's going to continue to assert that he won the election, that he should be in office today, and that Georgia was part of that. He's made that point consistently. He hasn't deviated from it. For him to deviate from it now, just because charges have been brought, wouldn't be consistent with where he's been or where he is going down the road. He's going to argue through the 2024 elections that he should have been in office for the last four years. Let's talk about this document, because if you remember yesterday, first of all, we've all been anticipating this particular indictment. But then all of a sudden something was posted on the docket. Everyone wondered what sort of heads would roll. And then there was the question of Fannie Willis about, wait a second, something was posted all of a sudden. And then it was taken down, kind of a yo-yo, take it and give it back and take it away again. And then she had to answer questions. She said, I'm not going to speculate. He doesn't know how to be a clerk, and she was not one. We're now learning information about this very thing, Jamil, that apparently they did some sort of a test run to figure out how you're going to post this. You're shaking your head because many people were as well going, how about you just post the test document and said the actual word test on it. It has legs, though, and people are trying to suggest that this was a foregone conclusion, that it was always in the cards. It wasn't a fair process. What do you say? I mean, look, everyone knew these charges were coming, right? We've been talking about this for months, right? We knew the case was being presented to the grand jury. Fannie Willis herself said that, right? So there's no question this was coming. You know, should should they have done a better job? Should they have posted this the right way? Should they have done a test thing uh, in a better manner? Of course, right? At the end of the day, the reality is the grand jury voted for this indictment. They're behind it. That's the facts on the ground, regardless of whether they tried to post it or not a day earlier, There's no conspiracy here about the grand jury. The grand jury brought the charges. They voted for it. That's the process in the state of Georgia. I mean, it was earlier that day. It wasn't even a time beforehand. So, of course, the fact that, you know, if you're looking for, they say, if you're looking for a conspiracy theory, you might just find one. But we'll see what happens next. Jamil Jaffer, so nice to see you. Thank you so much. Up next, everyone, Donald Trump is intensifying his attacks on, well, you guessed it, Fonnie Willis. Daniel Dale will be here to fact check some of the claims that he is now raising. Plus, now that Trump and his allies have, what, a mere 10 days to surrender, surrender meaning go to the courthouse and tell them that they're there, hear what to expect when they're actually arrested. And one conservative says that the indictment makes it likelier that Trump will actually attend next week's debate. 
That's coming Wednesday in Milwaukee. We'll talk about it next. Well, it's only a Tuesday night and there are already wild accusations from sex to murder. Donald Trump is intensifying his attacks on Fulton County DA Fanny Willis. Joining me now for a fact check is CNN senior reporter Daniel Dale. Daniel, I'm so glad that you're here right now. We're hearing a lot about this woman and about her as a prosecutor. A lot of it coming from Donald Trump, but I'm curious as to what is true and what is fact and fiction. I think I have a sense of what is what. But one of the things that Trump is saying is that Willis should stop spending so much time focusing on, I guess, him. And this is a quote, should instead focus on the record number of murders in Atlanta. So tell me, how do the statistics in Atlanta actually match up to the claim? So this is one of the many cases where Trump could make a factual point if he just stuck to the actual facts, but instead exaggerates himself into falseness. So he could have accurately said Atlanta, like much of the country, has seen a murder spike during the pandemic between 2020 and 2022. He could have said that Atlanta's 2022 murder number, which was 170 homicides, was the highest since 1996. Mm. But it is not a record. In fact, according to statistics that a consultant named Jeff Asher provided to me, it is only the 23rd highest homicide number for Atlanta since 1960. It's like 35th if you do per capita numbers. So no, not even close to a record. It's about 100 lower than the record set in 1973. And I'll make another point. The the Trump campaign released an attack ad attacking Willis and other prosecutors who are prosecuting Trump. And it included a quote in big text. It said that uh, so far this year, Atlanta has nearly 60% more murders. So you see that and think, oh, that's terrible. This year must be bad. But if you look at the small faded print the ad doesn't highlight, it shows that this year is actually 2021. That's when there was the giant spike. If you look at the numbers so far this actual year, 2023, it's about a 25% decline year over year compared to 2022. It's always a little bit odd, too, to talk about the prosecutor and decisions about stats on the actual crimes that are committed, although their role is in part to prosecute and obviously to deter, but it's more of a criticism for maybe police chief or other policies involved. Interesting nonetheless. Also in that same post, but wait, there's more, as they say, because he went on. The thumbs were busy. Former president also accuses Willis of, and this one is very salacious. It's bananas. It's, it's, okay, that's a better word to use. It's, (laughs) quote, having an affair with a gang member of a group that she is prosecuting, unquote. Is there anything to that? There is not, and it's bonkers. I'll I'll walk people through it because it's confusing. So there is a rapper, people may or may not know, named YSL Mondo. Now, he is part of a hip-hop collective uh, whose other members Willis is prosecuting, alleging that that collective is also a criminal street gang. Now, YSL Mondo gave an interview to Rolling Stone magazine in January when he said, basically, like, fun fact, in 2019, when Fonnie Willis was a defense lawyer, she actually represented me. He said we had a cool relationship. We had, like, auntie to nephew, mother to son type talks. She was a great lawyer. So no hint of an affair. Somehow the Trump campaign and that attack ad twisted that into Fonnie Willis is hiding a relationship with uh, a gang member that, uh, a member of a gang that she was prosecuting, even though she didn't hide it. She confirmed to Rolling Stone, like, yeah, I represented him when I used to be a defense lawyer. And then somehow Trump went further than that and took the hiding a relationship thing, turned it into hiding some sort of affair, like a sexual intimate relationship. There was no hint anywhere in that Rolling Stone article of an affair, no hint anywhere. He's provided zero evidence because it appears there is no evidence at all. But it's a talking point, nonetheless. Finally, um, there's also Trump attacking her for refusing to investigate the supposed theft of the 2020 election. Walk me through that one. 
I mean, you, you walked through it a moment ago. Yeah. Like, he might as well say she's refusing to investigate, like, leprechauns or chemtrails <laughs> or, or something, right? There was no theft to investigate. This was a free and fair election. He lost Georgia fair and square. The outcome was certified by Republican Secretary of State Brad Raffensperger, by Republican Governor Brian Kemp, who again affirmed today on Twitter the legitimacy of that election. And look, like, he lost. You know, he, he claims he's coming forward with massive conclusive proof on Monday. He's had two and a half years to show such proof has not come even close. Imagine that. Daniel Dale, so glad you're here to fact check all this. Unbelievable that we're actually in this moment. Thank you so much, everyone. For more on all this, I want to bring in former DeKalb County District Attorney Gwendolyn Keyes Fleming. I'm so glad that you are here tonight. Thank you so much for joining me. First of all, I mean, there's a lot happening in Georgia, as you can imagine. I'm sure you know. A lot of focus on what's happening in Fulton County. You were with DeKalb County, obviously. But there's a lot of very big similarities. I have to ask you, what was your impression when you saw this indictment roll out? I mean, we're talking over 90 pages. RICO is the big umbrella. It requires a bit of an explanation, people, of what that actually means. But what did you make of this indictment? So I actually had mixed emotions. One, I'm very proud of Fani, the DA, her team. They've worked hard for two years, and this is the culmination of those efforts. Running a special grand jury with 75 witnesses over the course of just under a year, that is a huge undertaking. And now you're finally at the point where we can actually see the fruit of those efforts. But at the same time, it's a sad day for our country to think about what this means in terms of history of indicting a, a former president and many of his colleagues. So I think now is the time to, to see what is going to be happening going forward. Uh, we've already seen some motions. You, you mentioned them earlier. We can expect to see many more from several members of the defense teams. Uh, but we'll also see a prosecutor's office that's ready for the moment. You know, prosecutors are always going to be um, a little bit on edge in terms of their safety because the nature of the work that you do is going to bring you under not only scrutiny, but you're not necessarily the most popular person in the courthouse. Let's just say that. I've been a prosecutor myself. Um, do you have concerns about her safety? Because we just talked about some of the targeted attacks against her. She's already had to increase her security as well. But now that this is even going to be a televised proceeding, it's already been to some degree. She's had press conferences. She's not shying away from the camera. Do you have concerns about her safety? I think any prosecutor would in this sort of scenario. And certainly, uh, I've not seen the attacks. She shared them, obviously, with some of her staff. Uh, but the fact that she's reached out to the sheriffs for protection, she's notified the judges to have them keep their staff at home. She has kept many of her staff at home to limit the number of people that are in the courthouse. You can tell that she is taking these uh, various attacks very seriously. And I think all of uh, Fulton County and law enforcement will continue to do so going forward. And I just have to hope and pray that uh, those efforts, those protective efforts worse work. You know, the big story is the sheer number and scope of, of all the people who've been charged as well. In addition to the idea that this is now a fourth and historic indictment that includes a former president, but it includes like 19 people total. Um, she said just yesterday in her press conference that she intends to try this case together, these defendants together, which automatically people go, wait, 19 defendants all at once. And whoever gets this case as the judge if they have hair today, they will not have hair <laughs> later. They will have yanked it out with 19 different defense counsels. Do you think that's a realistic expectation? Given, of course, this is a, a RICO charge, which includes an enterprise as the whole predicate of everything. 
The idea of all together, can that be done here? So there's a couple things to think about. One, having a RICO indictment in a lot of ways makes it easier because, as you know, the prosecutor likes to tell the story. And so now you can tell the whole story with even those acts and little bits of information that help build upon some of the actual crimes that you would have to prove. And so in the RICO statute, you have to prove two predicate acts. Out of all those that she's alleged, she only has to prove two to be successful. I think the other thing... Uh, that is important to, to keep in mind is she's an experienced prosecutor. She's handled these RICOs before, cases before. She's handled multi 12 more or 20 uh, defending cases before. So while it may seem like 19 is a little untoward or might be a little difficult, we don't know that there will actually be eight, 19 or even 18 at the time of the trial. As we go through, like you know, there are going to be motions. Some of those may cut in the defense favor. Some may cut in her favor. There's going to be discovery issues uh, and, and sharing of discovery. Once the defense team sees what that evidence is, they may start to make decisions where they either want to make deals to lesser charges or take lesser sentences. Or so, remove to federal court. Or remove to federal court. There's a lot of possibilities here just during the normal course of a criminal trial that may naturally narrow that number down. But the key thing is she's ready to go. And I think that's the underlying theme that we all have to remember. If she had said anything less, people would be questioning, is she certain about her case? Is she really ready? And she's not a prosecutor that's going to leave you questioning about her ability or her readiness to take this case to trial. To be clear, she'll be questioned nonetheless. That's just the nature of the game. We're looking forward to seeing what happens next, not in the sense of glee, but in the sense of with an eye towards history and what all of this means. Thank you for being here today. Sure. Thank you nice for having me. Nice to see you. My next guest, everyone, says that these new charges make it likelier that Trump will attend next week's debate. It's coming in Milwaukee. We'll talk about that next. Plus, we are now learning just what special counsel Jack Smith wanted to see when he subpoenaed Trump's Twitter account. Well, tonight, as expected, the reaction to Donald Trump's now fourth, yes, fourth indictment from his 2024 rivals, the very ones who were trying to actually best him for an RNC nomination, well, it's best described as a mixed reaction. Here's a little taste. We see the legal system being weaponized against political opponents. That is un-American and unacceptable. Even if you disagree with some of the criminal charges here, if you think they were an overreach, or as I think on this one, they're unnecessary, it doesn't get rid of the underlying conduct, which is what we should be discussing in the campaign. And so uh, I think it's an example uh, of this criminalization of politics. Uh, I don't think that this is something that, that's good for the country. Well, the Florida governor, Governor Ron DeSantis, was also saying that these indictments have actually helped Trump in the polls. The question now is, will they lead him to the debate stage? It's coming up this coming Wednesday. Well, my next guest has a new column arguing that it just got a whole lot likelier. Daily Beast columnist Matt Lewis joins me now. He's also the author of the new book, Filthy Rich Politicians. Matt Lewis, nice to see you here this, this evening. Listen, um, I bet Fox News hopes you're right, because they definitely would like him to be on that debate stage. I'm not so sure the other candidates on the one hand, want him to be there, but they know it would be a bigger draw. He has been playing coy, to say the least, over his plans. 
Why do you think that this would be something that's more likely now? Well, first of all, you know, I, I you have serious people on who talk about law, you know, law staff and prosecutors. And as a political pundit, we're obsessed with things like debates. And okay. so this has been a big question for a long time. Will Donald Trump show up to the debate? And it's hard to tell, right? Because he likes drama. He likes to kind of mislead people and maybe swoop in at the last moment. Strategically speaking, he might not want his adversaries to know if he's going to be there. Uh, that way they have to prep two different, you know, we prep for Trump there, we prep for Trump not there. Uh, so I've always thought, look, Donald Trump loves attention, he craves attention, and he has this need uh, to also demonstrate his toughness and his machismo. And so for those reasons, I always thought it probably at the last minute Trump would decide to show up, if, if for no other reason, for the attention. I think this indictment uh, probably puts it over the top and makes it much more likely that Trump shows up for, for a few reasons. One, although it doesn't look like his, his rivals are going to capitalize on it, uh, you could imagine that this would be their moment, the first well, debate. Well, wait, Matt, you're being generous. Somewhere. It it doesn't look like they're going to attack him because they're not going to attack him. I mean, that, that, that's why oh. it looks like that. <laughs> they haven't. Well, and again, I think this is, Chris Christie very well might, Mike Pence might, but I think it would be, I think Ron DeSantis is, is a big missed opportunity, but that's that's the story of his entire campaign, right, is a missed opportunity. But, you know, the interesting thing is Donald Trump, I think, realizes that the, the Mar-a-Lago case and now this Georgia case are serious. And there's a precedent for it. I, I don't know if you remember, but way back in 2016, the Access Hollywood video dropped on October 7th. Mm. And man, it was devastating. I, I think everyone, a lot of people thought Trump might even drop out. But there was a debate two days later, and he showed up at that debate, and he survived. And I think he actually surprised everybody by going on, That's the, true. Going on the attack. And I think that that debate saved his candidacy. And I wonder if maybe there's some sort of magic... Uh, that he sees, uh, you know, getting back on stage and, uh, you know, demonstrating once again that he's the man. Well, you know, Matt, if I remember and at one time back and I, I, I would know just how much time has transpired and all the things that have occurred in this country to say way back in 2016. But it's a true statement that you just made. Um, wasn't one Senator Lindsey Graham hoping to be on either the varsity or the JV stage that people were talking about? Well, I want you to listen for a moment about what that senator has had to say about the Georgia case. He's spending more money on lawyer fees than he is running for office. Uh, January the 6th, I was there. I saw it. He was impeached over it. The American people can decide whether they want him to be president or not. This should be decided at the ballot box, not in a bunch of liberal jurisdictions trying to put the man in jail. Here's one of the issues people have with this entire talking point. On the one hand, you heard, look, this is not appropriate for the impeachment proceedings. It's right for the um, a criminal case. No, it's not right for a criminal case. It's right for the voters. But I remember that, in fact, the voters did decide, which is the crux of the entire issue, they decided that Biden won in the state of Georgia and Trump's actions are what is now getting him charged. He's got a total of 91, by the way, in four different cases. 
Do you buy Lindsey Graham's statement, the senator's statement about these issues, about leave it to the voters? It's such a circular argument, right? You know, Mitch McConnell saying the legal area, the legal world will take care of this. And that now people are saying, well, it was really it should have been impeachment, you know, and so, no matter what happens, somebody argues that it's, it's somebody else's job to take to take Donald Trump out or to stop Donald Trump from you know stealing elections or or, or whatnot. Um, I do think, you know, listening to Lindsey Graham there. I think there is an electability argument that could be made in this debate. You know, what, like like Ron DeSantis could say, look, I think they're politicizing or criminalizing politics. I think that's wrong. But let's be honest. Donald Trump is now facing four indictments. He's not even going to be able to campaign next year. So I do think that there's a possibility that this could be used against Trump, mm. uh, especially if he doesn't show up to defend himself next week. So I think that increases the odds he'll be there. Well, we shall see. You only have a couple days really until we see whether you're right or wrong, Matt Lewis. Thank you so much. Thank you. Well, up next, Elon Musk says that he's a free speech champion, everyone. But is Twitter purposely slowing down access to sites that it's, well, billionaire owner doesn't like? Kara Swisher joins me next. Plus, Morgan Freeman joins me at the Pentagon in a riveting conversation that you do not want to miss. Well, it's one of Elon Musk's favorite refrains, free speech. Free speech, you hear him say all the time. But today, something was weird for many of his users on X or as we're all old enough to recall when it was called Twitter. Load times for links to several news outlets and rival platforms, well, they were noticeably slower, taking more time to load than others. Now, in tech speak, it's called being throttled. The sites impacted include the New York Times, Facebook, Instagram, Threads, Blue Sky, Substack, and Reuters. So is Reuters. So I wonder, is, um, is X owner Elon Musk slowing down access to sites that he dislikes. The company did not respond to CNN when we asked for an explanation, but I want to talk about this now with Kara Swisher, host of Pivot and on with Kara Swisher, who's now on with Laura Coates. Kara, nice to see you right I now. Hi. Um, I How you I'm good. I wonder about this whole free speech discussion with Elon Musk because he mm-hmm. is billing X as a free speech platform. But if competitors and news yeah. sites are being throttled, as they say, you wonder, is the platform really that open? Well, he also said he was going to do a cage match in Rome with Mark Zuckerberg, and that wasn't true. So let's keep that in context. Although he did send a series of creepy stalker tweets at him last night, I guess, the middle of the night. Um, In any case, that's the context I want to put it in, is that it's free speech for he, but not for we, you know, whatever he wants. And he did buy the company. Um, What's ironic is that this was the thing that he complained about and many conservatives complained about was throttling or shadow banning and all these different things, which really wasn't happening before, um, except when people broke the rules of the platform, although they'll continue to say it is so, but it's just not. There's no, 
you know, there was no rigorous way of doing it. This is what he's doing. He's decided who to favor and who not to favor, who to give money to and not to give money to. There's in every single aspect of this, it's whatever he wants and it's his world and he we just live in it, I guess. Um, and so it's not a surprise that he would do that. Um, I think they've pulled it off. They've dethrottled certain of the news organizations, but maybe he's mad about I don't know, some review of one of his cars or he didn't like some profile of him or someone making fun of the, the cage match or, you know, Substack's a competitor, Threads is a competitor. That's the kind of thing that he's doing. So, I mean, his, what is, what's world. that famous that famous line? It's good to be the king. And yet with all the criticism and all of this notion of, of what's happening or what might be happening, People, they may have slowed down using it. There have been other outlets and sites being used, but mm-hmm. people are still using X, including yourself, including I still use it as well. And uh, well, although I'm, I'm certainly not the social media, I, I only, maybe I you only, are. Honestly, I only use it to make fun of Elon Musk. That's really my thing. <laughs> On the, I, I use my, I use threads for personal stuff or Instagram um, or other, other sites. Um, and I don't use it for most things anymore. I've cut back rather drastically. Um, it's really got, I've had to turn off comments because of the vile things many mm-hmm. people are now saying. Um, and so it's not a useful platform to me in any way. I certainly read it just like I read a lot of things, uh, but it's certainly degraded as an experience. And the ads are just bizarre. I mean, I could have bought something to clean out my insides of my ears the other day. That was nice. But um, in general, it's the platform's degraded rather substantively. And so, um, you know, I, I don't know. He could just do what he wants. And I don't think it's it's not getting bigger. It's getting worse. The money is less. Oh. It was never a good business. And now it's a worse business. Um, but he's the richest man in the world. And and Sky uh, and uh, and Tesla and uh, and his rocket company are doing rather well. So he can afford to to do this. Well, I'm, I'm concerned about all the ads you're actually getting right now, Kara, and the why. But I have to ask you this last question in the short time we have left. Yeah. And that is about the news that we are learning tonight, that the special counsel got a hold mm. of Trump's DMs from mm-hmm. Twitter. What do you think investigators right. would actually find in uh, Trump's DMs? Who slide in them? I don't know who slides into his DMs. But, I mean, what was interesting is that, that the, the judge in the case really chided Twitter for trying to delay it and then possibly alerting Trump to it. They wanted to keep that secret because it's evidence, right? Um, all kinds of things they were looking for. Who knows who's, who was using it, when they used it. Probably around January 6th, there's a lot of when was it being used and who was accessing it and what communications, just like any other communications you, you'd use and uh, when they're investigating a crime. And so Twitter apparently resisted or slow rolled it and then got a fine, a $350,000 fine. And the judge was pretty strongly saying that Elon was trying to favor Donald Trump in the in the in some of the transcripts released today. Well, a judge thinking that maybe he can't be the king. Kara Swisher, host mm-hmm. of Pivot. Thank you so not. much. Always great to see you. Thanks. Thanks, Laura. Thanks. Up next, Hollywood legend Morgan Freeman on the original Black Panthers, Heroes of World War II. My conversation with him at the Pentagon is next. Well, this Sunday, actor Morgan Freeman presents a documentary on the History Channel called The 761st Tank Battalion, the original Black Panthers. It tells the story of the heroic men of the first Black Tank Battalion in World War II the combat they faced in Europe, and the discrimination they faced back here in America. I had a chance and the pleasure to sit down with Morgan Freeman at the Pentagon to talk about this documentary and why it was so special 
to him. Tell me how this story came to your attention. A guy, playwright, I think it was a playwright, screenwriter, came to us, Revelations, with the idea. I never heard of the 761st. And then he started learning about them and how they did figure into the war to such an extent, to what extent that they, they did figure into the conquest of the Nazis in Europe. Uh, so why don't I know about them? Oftentimes history is being erased or it's being dismissed. Re and people are rerouted. Saying, rerouted. That's a good way of thinking about it. It's rerouted. Rerouted into the can, though, the dumpster oftentimes. And this really tells about a really instant and really significant intersection. The idea of this all-black battalion not only being, you know, the only ones. Well, the they had white commanders. They had white commanders. Yeah, so, I mean, they were there. It's not like they just sat back and sent these black guys out there went with them for the most part, but it was an all-black battalion. And they were in combat in World War II. Yeah. They saw the combat. Yeah. They were fighting for 183 days nonstop, pretty much. Were they successful in battle? You mentioned, and the documentary goes into great detail, about their extraordinary significance and role that, although might not be known, surely is not understated. How did they perform? Patton was commanding the 3rd Army, and when they got there and they started to fight, he kept them moving forward. He kept them out front. Mm. They were actually in the, front, in the front lines. They were the tip of the spear. And it stands in such contrast for people to understand that what they endured, the 761st, their bravery and valor, may have been regarded highly overseas in battle. But they came home, Morgan. And yeah. when they came home, there was a separate battle that they still had to fight. They were not treated with the dignity and respect of their white counterparts at all. Um, you know, black men have fought, black men and women have fought in every single uh, conflagration that this country was ever in, starting with the revolution, never got quite the recognition for that effort. Never. You just had a chance to sit in a fireside chat with General Lloyd Austin, and um, he's historic in his own right. Oh, yeah. That was our second fireside chat, actually. I was here some months ago. We're talking about the 761st and, and his own military experience coming up through the ranks to be what he is. I remember asking him one time, do you ever, you ever think about the fact that you're black? He said, every day. How does that strike you? the right thing to say. <laughs> Does it surprise you, though, that a man of that stature and rank would not be removed from the reality of race in America? You can't be removed from race in America. You just can't, you cannot. 
there might be some who will say, look, let's just teach about the glory of patriotism. Let's teach about the valor of our armed services collectively. Why focus singularly on a particular battalion and the fact that it was black? Why is that part and should be part of our conversation about the history of even our military and our success? Because history just skipped over them. All of our stories, uh, all of our heroes, people we make movies about, particularly the people we make movies about, the war stories and stuff like they leave the black soldiers out. They have always left them out. If it was a black soldier there, it's Patton, for instance, the movie Patton. There was a black soldier in there, but he was Patton's manservant. It, no mention of the 761st, anywhere in that movie. And didn't have to mention it, just show me one in a tank. There's a kind of death that takes place if you're forgotten in history. And that's the worst death, I think. That is, to all of those people of color who died in all those wars, unsung, unheralded, and unheard of, they're dead. That's, that's, that's total annihilation, that's death. Mm. We're trying to resurrect here. A huge thanks to Morgan Freeman for that, the pleasure of that conversation and the pleasure of having this documentary come to light. Be sure to check it out this coming Sunday. Everyone, thank you so much for watching. Our coverage continues next. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Now streaming exclusively on Max, a new CNN flash talk about the album that has Nashville talking, Call Me Country, Beyonce and Nashville's Renaissance. Watch it at max.com slash callmecountry. Max subscription required.